iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Levy. My guest today is Mike Shinoda, the rapper, producer, songwriter of Linkin Park, although he's here to talk about what's essentially his first solo album. It's called Post Traumatic, and although Mike has released music under the name Fort Minor before, this is the first album he's released under his own name. Now, last year, on May 19th, Linkin Park released their seventh studio album, One More Light. It became their fifth album to debut at number one on the Billboard album chart, and in fact, all but two of their albums have debuted at number one, which is a pretty remarkable run over an 18-year stretch. But what should have been a moment of celebration was marked by tragedy. On May 18th, the day before the release of One More Light, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden took his own life. Cornell and Lincoln Park's Chester Bennington were close, and at a memorial service in Los Angeles ten days later, Bennington sang Hallelujah, accompanied by bandmate Brad Delson on guitar. Here's how Bennington paid tribute to Cornell on Twitter. Your voice was joy and pain, anger and forgiveness, love and heartache all wrapped up into one. I suppose that's what we all are. You helped me understand that. Indeed, Bennington had a lot of pain and heartache of his own, more than a share. And two months later, on July 20th, he took his own life. As some people immediately noted, that day was Chris Cornell's birthday, the kind of thing that can make you think you understand an action that, at its core, resists easy explanations or understanding. As Mike Shinoda explains, he himself grew up a visual artist and a musician, and he's always used his art as a way of processing his experience, of making sense of things, but immediately after Chester's death, he really wasn't sure what to do. It was weird because when I look back at it, I don't think there's ever been a time when I've not been able to go write a, like when I felt like weird about writing a song. It's always like if I have something going on, that's like the best time to go write a song. You know, you're dealing with stuff. I use my visual art and my music as therapy. So it's always like a thing. If I'm going through something difficult, oftentimes I'll go straight to the songwriting stuff. But with this, there was a time where I was really like scared to be in the studio a little bit, not like scared, but just like anxious. Because let's anxiety. be clear, what was going on? Well, yeah. So after Chester passed, it was hard for me to go in the studio for a while. And then at a certain point, I remember speaking to Dave Phoenix from the band. And um, actually all of us got together at Dave's house. And he had said, oh, have you guys listened to any of our music yet? And everyone was like, no way. But he had. And he was like, you know, it was hard. It seemed scarier than it was. You know, now that I've listened to it, I know I can listen to it. Well, the same thing happened to me with getting in the studio. It's like at first it seemed like, oh, man, it's going to feel really weird to go in and write about anything. And I did a few. I just kind of, you know, bit the bullet and went in and did some stuff. And some of it was really just screwing around and just playing whatever, like play guitar for a couple hours or or just doodle around on the piano or make some sounds, make a little like beat. 
eventually, yeah, I was making songs every day, it seemed like. All the ones that were about stuff that was actually going on, songs that were actually serious songs, most of those just kind of turned into this record. I don't have a leg to stand on Spinning like a whirlwind, nothing to land on. The solo music Shinoda began to release starting in January talked about loss in ways that were both deeply personal and universal. In a song called Place to Start, he sang about feeling like he was in a whirlwind, sometimes scared that everything he'd built might fall apart, sometimes feeling like he was so focused on endings that he'd run out of the will to find a beginning. But it felt less like a song and more like a page out of his journal. And that feeling was reinforced by a video he put out of him simply singing the song into his phone, which was more like a Skype call than a video from a musician who's been selling out arenas for almost two decades. And that immediacy was the whole point. Shinoda was figuring out things as he went and sharing the process. And when I say figuring out things as he went, I mean it very literally. The first verse of Over Again was written and recorded on October 27th, the day Lincoln Park played a memorial concert at the Hollywood Bowl with friends from Blink-182, No Doubt, Korn, and many others stepping in to help honor Chester Bennington. Shinoda is describing the feelings he had beforehand, right down to wanting to puke his guts out rather than get on stage. But at the same time, anyone who's experienced the death of a friend or a loved one has wrestled with what's expressed in the chorus of this song, that saying goodbye isn't confined to a single moment or even a series of moments. It happens over and over and over again. And anyone who's experienced loss also knows the moment when someone comes up to you and expresses his or her condolences, and it has more to do with them than it does with you. Shinoda talks about this in Hold It Together. What I really wanted to do with a lot of those things, and it happens in the show too, is to take you and put you in my shoes. Like, to make sure that when you're hearing it, it's like, oh shit. Like, I hadn't thought of what it must be like, right? And there were a few moments like, like that on the record where, you know, somebody's asking about, you know, oh, it must be so hard, are you okay, and whatever. And it's like, you know what, motherfucker? I was doing really good until you started bringing it up. Like, I haven't even thought about that all day. Now I'm thinking about it, and we're at a birthday party. Maybe you could have stopped yourself, like, 30 seconds ago and said, wait, is now the appropriate time to ask this or to say this? Like, maybe we wait till later. To understand the magnitude of the loss that charges post-traumatic, you have to understand how Chester Bennington and Mike Shinoda each served as the engine of one another's dreams. When Linkin Park first released their debut album, Hybrid Theory, in 2000, they were lumped in with a lot of other bands that had grown up on both heavy guitars and hip-hop, and some of them shared a penchant for the gratuitous use of the letter K when spelling their names. I'm thinking here of Corn and Limp Biscuit. But Linkin Park were bigger and have lasted longer, in part because they did more. 
not just made music with a broader range, more open to other sounds and feelings than pure rage. It's also, as they were coming up, they cared about nothing but playing shows and meeting fans afterwards. We're shooting for the title of hardest working band in America, Bennington boasted to Rolling Stone in 2001, and that is the year that they did 324 live performances, which is not exactly one a day for a full year. It's one every 1.17 days. I did the math. They also had something that other bands with a K didn't, two vocalists, Mike Shinoda and Chester Bennington. Shinoda was the rapper, Bennington was the singer, and also the screamer and also everything in between. On breakthrough songs like In the End, Bennington could sound delicate like the piano and raw like the guitars. It was like a whole band in one throat. It starts with one I don't know why. It doesn't even matter how hard you try. Keep that in mind. I'm designed to to explain in due time. I tried so hard and got so far. It took more than a year for Hybrid Theory to climb to number two on the album chart. Don't let that number two fool you. It was a dominator. Hybrid Theory would become the best-selling album of 2001, beating out records from Jay-Z and Sync and Britney Spears. And it stayed on the Billboard chart for 209 weeks, a little more than four years. It sold better than 10 million copies. Park went at it hard when they were on stage and hard when they weren't, but not the way most bands did. We'd rather go to somebody's house and write a song than go to a party, Shinoda told Rolling Stone in 2003. At parties, you knew what was going to happen. You knew who was going to get drunk. But when we got together to write songs, we never knew what was going to happen. It was much more exciting. Linkin Park became the biggest new rock band of the 2000s. For years, they had their own touring festival, Project Revolution, that in 2004 featured both Korn and Snoop Dogg. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. And that's the same year they did a special for MTV with Jay-Z that became the Collision Core CP, the rare mashup project that works for more than a few minutes at a time. It's amazing how well Numb and Encore go together and how much each side gets from the other. Lincoln Park is a whole new kind of swagger. Jay-Z has a new kind of thunder. It shouldn't work, but it totally does. After that, it was natural that Linkin Park hook up with producer Rick Rubin, who'd masterminded some of the first fusions of rock guitar and hip-hop with Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. They recorded three albums with Rubin, who pushed them to write songs rather than make tracks. And on songs like Shadow of the Day, from 2007's Minutes to Midnight, they sounded more like a band than ever. In fact, they sounded like they were ready to be the next U2. At the beginning for Linkin Park, everybody played two roles, one in the band, one behind the scenes. Shinoda and keyboardist turntablist Joe Hahn handled the visuals, with Hahn directing the videos. 
Guitarist Brad Delson and drummer Rob Borden handled some marketing and finance duties. Bassist Dave Farrell was the tour correspondent doing updates for their website. But Bennington's job was more like being the heart of the band. He and Shinoda wrote the lyrics, and in interviews, he embodied the pain, the angst, and the positivity expressed in the songs. He talked about his past, his struggles with addiction and childhood abuse, and he talked about being a regular guy, about working hard, and about life being good. The band had existed before Chester Bennington joined. They'd written songs, they'd played together, they'd recorded, but it only really came together once he was there to add a voice and a face and a heart to the music. It's no surprise that Shinoda says now the future of the band is an open question. It's tempting to hear all of Post Traumatic as a reaction to Bennington's death. Some songs aren't, though sometimes even those have a way of coming back to the subject. But there's a post in Post Traumatic for a reason. Mike Shinoda is struggling to find the way to move forward. And in one of his first in-depth sit-downs since Chester Bennington's death, we talked about whether or not there's a future for Linkin Park, what it's going to be like to go on tour playing his own music and some Linkin Park songs by himself on stage in massive festivals, and how much Chester Bennington meant to him. Let's hear what Mike Shinoda has to say. So how are you? I'm good. Yeah? I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about putting this record together. First, let's start at the beginning. Now, the songs that we heard on the post-traumatic EP seem to very directly address Chester's death and your feelings afterwards. But are you saying that there were other songs you were making during that period that were about something else or, or didn't fit into this project but had a different direction? It was mostly that I was writing about whatever was on my mind. So usually that would fit under the umbrella of this album. I did a couple things that were a little more like stylistically like way different. Like I've joked around that it was like a, that sounded like, like a bad Smashing Pumpkins song or like a Nine Inch Nails song or something. Yeah, those just didn't pan out. Like I did them for fun just to do it. But the, the vast majority of the stuff I made became post-traumatic and there's 16 songs on the record which is the longest album i've ever done or been involved with i should say you know it's autobiographical it had this live journal feel to it i mean it's journalistic in some sense particularly once those videos started coming out tell me about the process of putting together those videos there's place to start over again i had done the first few songs i didn't know where it was going to go but i knew i had some songs and the first ones, it seemed to me that it should be in some chronological order or something that resembled that. So the first few songs I had were the ones you just named. And I decided at one point I was listening back to them in my studio on the sofa and I pulled out my phone and I, I had this idea of what a video for that song could look like. And I just pulled out my phone and did a selfie video of it. I just saw the look of the thing and I thought that would actually make a kind of cool video. So I just shot it. And then later, having done that, I did another one and I did some more little shots and it became stylistically that, again, like autobiographical kind of depiction of what I was doing felt like the right way to visually represent the songs. What it did is it removed any kind of like intermediary in the conversation. It was just me talking to you, right? As opposed to like, it's being shot by a director Here's Mike talking about this really personal stuff. And we storyboarded out this really cool narrative. All of that was removed. 
the feelings happening in real time and the songs right. being documented that way. Yes. And once I did them, it became part of the visual aesthetic of the whole thing. Part of the idea was from the paintings that I was doing at the time, those became the packaging, they became the merchandise, the videos and the autobiographical nature, just like the communication style, is there on the record. It's there in the visuals. In one sense, it just blurs the line between real-time social media and videos and things that you don't usually think of as real-time. Like the most recent one I did was for a song about you, which we just put out a couple weeks ago. Decided to put it out. The week that we were putting it out, I decided to shoot the video while I was out promoting the record and I flew to China I was already going to be out there to do some record promo and shoot some stuff for tour announcements in Asia and while I was there we shot the video and then a few days later it was on the internet like everything is in real time and just to be clear for people who haven't heard it about you like a lot of songs on this record it is addressing loss so about you the idea of the song is even when I don't think the song is about this even when I don't think the moment is about this it comes back to this yeah. right or there's two versions of it sometimes when I'm writing about something it does come back to the context of having lost Chester or mm-hmm. the uncertainty of the band's current situation the other thing is though that even when I l- actually don't write a song having anything to do with those things People see it through that lens. So in other words, just to put it into somebody else's context entirely so that you can see where I'm coming from. Joe, if you have a public breakup with a woman, let's say you're both super celebrities and you're dating. Okay, this is going to be really imaginary, but okay, who, we're who both you, super you, celebrities. You, yeah, you're no, you're totally dating um, Scarlett Johansson. Wow. Right? Good for me. And then you broke up and everyone's like, oh man. They broke up. It's on the front page of all the things and all that. And people are talking about it. And then you go and you get coffee in your sweats and they take pictures of you and it's like oh see he's super depressed like didn't put on jeans in the shirt today today it was sweats like he must be super depressed it's all about her and then you get a slice of pizza oh you see he got the like Back five, on the carbs. five different toppings Back like on the carbs could have yeah. been yeah he's really hurting right now they see everything through this lens of like what they think you're going through and even if you're like, no, I literally just felt comfortable in my PJs and I went and got a slice of pizza because I like pizza, guys. Like, that's all there is to it. There's no reason to read further into it. But that's just how our world works. They're going to start seeing things through that lens. In fact, just this weekend, I had my first show, two shows, actually. I did a double header and did a radio show in the afternoon and did a longer headline set in the evening. It was in front of City Hall in L.A. It was part of an Asian festival Really special way to, like, kick things off. Perfect for me. I just loved it. A couple of the journalists who came and wrote about the events called it a tribute show. So I asked online just today, I tweeted, did you guys think that these were tribute shows? And if so, like, do you feel like that means it was sad? Did it feel, like, sad overall? Not that it didn't feel bittersweet at certain moments. There was definitely a tribute moment. I played in the end and we sang it together just piano and me and the crowd. You mentioned that you were working these tracks chronologically, and I'm curious to know, is the album sequenced that way? For the most part. It's not exact chronology. It doesn't follow exactly in the order in which they were written or happened, it, but I, it's I generally did, that. I did, as a listener, have this sensation of getting to 
not exactly the more upbeat songs, but definitely the sense of as the tracks go on, I'm getting this feeling of you're going on, you're moving on. Right. And I think that one thing that's different about this album than most albums I've put out from all the Linkin Park albums to the Fort Minor album, usually when you put out an album, it's, hey, I finished a thing. Check out the thing I made. It's finished. And this is almost like I started a thing. Like this is an album that captures a moment in time for the last six to nine months. And it is what it is. And now I'm going to continue to evolve and move on from here. As we get deeper into the album, we come to these tracks like Make It Up As I Go, Mm. World's On Fire. These are songs that seem to me we're addressing the same sorts of problems or feelings. Make It Up As I Go, How Do I Go On, World's Mm -hmm. On Fire, This Is A Bad Time. But they also had another side to them. They had this side of like, here's how I get past this. Yeah. So like... Make It Up As I Go actually started the hook of that we wrote towards the end of One More Light. It was Brad and I and Kay Flay. That song is more about, in its inception, of having that feeling of like not knowing what the next steps are, but you just kind of power through it and figure it out as you go. And I thought, you know, I came back to that song because I just always loved it. And then I wrote the verses more recently. I think that one relates a little more closely to the stuff of this last year. But the other one you mentioned, World's on Fire, when I wrote that one, the chorus of that is basically the world's on fire, but all I need is you. It's the first time I've really written that kind of like, it's like almost like just a love song. I was specifically thinking of my family. It occurred to me because it was one of those days when I was like really like, up to my eyeballs in my social media feed and it seemed like everything was just a mess you know you're reading it's like the political tweets are firing and everybody's like freaked out about the state of the country and the state of the world and then environmental tweets and like net neutrality tweets and then on top of it like there's like five wildfires going on in Los Angeles at the same time so all of this is happening at once and All of that without the crap that I had been through in the six months preceding that would have been enough as it was. But all put together, I was just like, everything is just falling apart at the seams. What a mess. And then I can go like sit down and play with my kids and it all kind of evaporates. (laughs) And and, and what's so interesting is receiving it now, Uh I connect it to some comments you'd made about loss being like a wildfire, you know, things are destroyed and it clears space for something new. But also there's that image, the image of the wildfire is actually in the Nothing Makes Sense video. Yeah, keep in mind, I grew up thinking I was going to be a painter. I grew up in art. I went to school for illustration. I've had three gallery shows now. The only reason I haven't had more is because I'm busy with playing music, you know. Sure, there's that minor distraction. Yeah, the little, being in one of the biggest bands in the so world. If I was busy doing that, I would do what I really want to do. In all seriousness, I grew up painting, and one of the things I get out of doing an art show, about creating a body of work that way, is that when you walk in, if it's done right, like you have this sense of this thread of intention that just weaves its way through everything that you're experiencing. Because some shows, there's painting and installation and sound and all of these different ways that you can communicate the concept of the thing. And so this 
record in a sense. I wanted to bring a little bit of that gallery experience or that gallery intention to the thing. So something we mentioned like the fires or other symbolism on the record, it occurs in various media in the whole effort. And still, I'm still weaving it in, even as we're starting to do live shows and and look at the production for the show. But it's funny to me as a listener how conflicting some of the emotions on this record are. There are moments of real rising above. Mm. Like I I think of Can't Hear You Now, which is almost like a battle rap. (laughs) If if you're a hater, I can't hear you now. Because that's that's really one way of looking at that song and hearing that song. Really, I think that was the intention of the song, for sure. And yet I hear it now and I come to that line, woke up knowing I don't have to be numb again. And Uh I think, oh yeah, maybe that's a reference back to this other thing I've been thinking about on this record. Well, that's the reality of the record and of going through something like this is, you know, most of us know it's that it's messy and the references are going to blend into one another. And even I listen to it and I go, oh yeah, I was definitely thinking about A, but subconsciously there's a little bit of B in there. You know, it's funny with a tragedy like this, sometimes difficult days are the good days. Sometimes you have a good day, everything's fine, you're with your kids, you're with your family, you don't think about the other thing, and you catch yourself feeling good, and that feels strange. I thought that I would get taken off guard by that more than I did. A lot of people that I've talked to had real difficult battles with feeling guilty for feeling good. One person described it as like, I made it all the way to lunch without thinking of the horrible thing that had happened. Mm-hmm. And in their case, it was, it was similar with somebody passing away. Oh, I made it all the way to lunch without thinking of them. Oh my God, I'm so horrible that I didn't think about them until lunch. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> For me, I'm like grateful on days when I can get back to more of a sense of normal. There's no disrespect or guilt that should come with that. Maybe I don't feel guilty because... I did feel like when things kind of fell apart and the dust settled that I was able to take a step back and look at my life and say, okay, am I doing things that I'm proud of? Am I doing good things? Like what I do with the music and my professional life, is that in a good balance with my family? And like, am I taking care of my wife and my kids and that type of stuff? I do feel like I looked at that and said, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing good. And this isn't just about, like, sell records and make money. This is about getting out with the people that have been part of my Linkin Park and individual musical community. We have, like, a family. There are people with my drawings and signatures and band artwork tattooed on their bodies. This is a a moment in time when they have been there for me when I'm feeling like I don't know what the hell's going on and when I have been there for them to reassure them that things are going to be okay. I'm not responsible for them. They're not responsible for me. But we can be support for one another and they can be support for one another without me even being in the picture. It's really reassuring to see that. I wish there was a way for me to like share that with more people Because when I look in my mentions and I see them talking to one another and saying such wonderful things, like, 
I mean, the end of the thought was just that that's really reassuring. The other day when I did that show at LA City Hall, some of the fans had gotten there super early in the morning, six in the morning or something. And it was an unusually cold day in LA, kind of rainy. Yeah, I saw them tweeting like, send tacos and blankets. Send, Send blankets and tacos, right. Believe it or not, one of the folks on our side, like who works at Warner Brothers, he, his name's Adam, and he ran our Lincoln Park fan club first before he moved over. He got poached by the label, but he's a friend of the community of Lincoln Park and of my music. He went and he made sure they were okay. Like, are you warm? Do you guys need some merchandise? Do you need a sweatshirt? Yes. Can I get you some water? That's what I'm talking about. Like, you'll even see it in, in Chester's wife, Talinda's feed. She'll retweet people who are just being kind to one another. Let me ask you about Chester. Those of us that knew him through the songs. Yeah. And in the songs, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of struggle. Uh, There's a lot of moving beyond that. But tell me a little bit about the Chester we didn't know. Well, the one thing that I like to remind people is that he was naturally gifted with the way he performed in his voice in particular. Like he had a world-class, one-of-a-kind voice, obviously. If you didn't know, he could sing basically any genre, any type of song that you threw at him. Barring hip-hop maybe a little bit, like, who wasn't the best rapper? You give him a singing part, and the dude could do anything. Didn't matter if it was, like, quiet female singer-songwriter. In fact, he'd be singing something like one of our songs, like tracking it in the studio. And I'd say, do it with 5% more Dave Gone. Do it with 25% more Adele. I'd throw out these references of other singers that I wanted him to imitate or add a flavor of. And he knew we had a vocabulary of that type of stuff that I could say to him and he knew what I meant. Nobody else had that with him. So that was a thing. Personally, you know, studio and all that stuff aside, I think when we wrote, we wrote about these difficult topics. But in general, especially in the past few years, he was so much more together than he had been in years prior. Like, he joked that the band was his most stable and together relationship. I think he was saying that in a joking way, because I think with his wife and his kids, I think that was probably number one, and we were probably number two. But but just to be clear, (laughs) there aren't a lot of bands that have a run this long. Just last year, you have a number one album, right? Usually when you have that situation, you have your couple classic albums... And then it's just you play the old stuff. We were fortunate enough to, for most of the records that we put out, we got a number one or two on the rock charts and alternative charts and a number one release and in many countries. So still very relevant is the point, I guess. I think with each album I've ever been involved with, each step of the way I'm trying to see what have I not done that seems exciting and fun that will keep it fresh and like in the in a sense of like the to go back to like that body of work, like this is the art show, like curate your experience. What is the experience you're curating for the fans this time? And how is that different than the other things that you've done? You've worked with a, a remarkable range of rappers across the career of Lincoln Park. Yeah. Common, of course, Jay-Z. Mm. Have you given thought to Lincoln Park's impact on hip hop? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Let's I mean, talk about that. I grew up a hip-hop kid first and foremost. Like, that's the, the first type of music I ever got into, fell in love with. It's, and, it's and most the, of what I listen to as Is a kid. the legend that your first show ever was a Public Enemy Anthrax show? Is that true? Or is, that is my first, the first concert I ever went to. It was uh, young, so you, so you it was went young, to that? Black, young Black Teenagers, Primus, 
Public Enemy Anthrax. So you go to that and you're like, we get some Depeche Mode keyboards in here. We might have something. It's like, a, it's almost comedic how, <laughs> like, it sounds like I would just be, I'd be making that up, right? That that would be the first show. But if you think about it, like, at that time, it, those types of music were being put together for the first time. And it was clumsy, like, in a way. There was a, a simplicity in the way they would just, like, mash the stuff up together. There were moments when it was really seamless, like Walk This Way. Like, yeah, Raising Hell. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Like, Run DMC. Like, sure. That is an album where when I listen to it, I go, okay, that's that's like a very seamless blend. There's a lot of food analogies in, in our band. So that would be like a soup where you take the ingredients and you blend them together and you can't tell one ingredient from the other. The anthrax public enemy thing is like a salad. You've got all the ingredients, but you can see them all. They're all separate ingredients, right? So sometimes we take one approach, sometimes we take another, and it's the gray area in the middle when it becomes really interesting. Hmm. Whenever I've approached the stuff, just the awareness of how blended do you want this thing to be? The hybrid theory brand of it was like kind of blended, but like you can kind of still see the parts from one another. But if you fast forward a few albums in, you start getting songs like on, um, for example, our fourth record was called A Thousand Sons. There's a song on there called When They Come For Me. When They Come For Me is just this like, I don't know what genre that song is. There isn't a name for that thing. This is a long way of saying. We were growing up in a time where music was very separate. And I know that we played a role in making it less separate. When I grew up, kids were metal kids, rock kids, rap kids, pop kids. You weren't like just fans of music. People didn't really do that. I mean, I think early, late 90s, early 2000s, you ask somebody, what do you listen to? And they go, oh, everything. And that was the beginning of, oh, everything. When I first heard Little Lucy Vert, XO, Tour Life, I was like, you know, this is a rap song that would not exist without you guys. I can see that. You know, I mean, that that sense of like those big keyboards, that keyboard drama, Mm. being open to that. That was a a turning point, I think. It's it's something different. Uh, Also, lyrically, if you think about that song, like there's a darkness and and an openness to just saying like, well, this is how I feel. I'm going to write about, you know, depression and whatever. Right. That emo side of current rap. Some of those rappers are kind of running from that a little bit and playing that down and saying, no, it's not emo or whatever. I get why they're doing that. I would probably feel the same way. You didn't want no. to be called a rap rock band no. in, in the year 2001. And Only because of be the now. associations. We just wanted it to be clear that there was such a big difference between what a lot of those bands were doing. One of your songs from the Fort Minor days deals specifically with identity. And I'm talking about uh, Kenji. Yeah, yeah. For those who don't know, it's the story of uh, Japanese immigrants held in internment camps during World War II. It's a personal story for you. Well, they weren't just immigrants. They were American citizens of Japanese descent. Basically, what happened is when Pearl Harbor was bombed, there was a high, you know, the highest level of wartime paranoia going on. The American government decided, oh, no, like, we don't know who could be a spy. We don't know, you know, what bad things could be happening. I mean, this sounds like it could happen today. Let's just make clear that, that there is a personal dimension here. Yeah, yeah. My dad's Japanese. My dad's side of the family is all Japanese. I'm half. I grew up understanding that my family had unjustly been put in these camps. Basically what happened is, short version of the story, Pearl Harbor happens. The government says we're putting all the Japanese on the West Coast in prison camps. 
They tell everybody to get out of their homes. They let them pack two bags of stuff and you have to leave the rest of your earthly belongings in your house alone. And you say, oh, well, when are we coming back? And there's like, whenever we tell you, you can. You get thrown in horse stalls to sleep, sometimes just tents, sometimes buses, whatever. Once the camps are built, they are built in the desert. You get shipped off to the desert and you stay there for years until the end of the war. And then when you go home, your home has been vandalized and some cases burned. Some cases, people's stuff was okay. My family's was not. The place was vandalized and everything was stolen. Um, and they had to start their lives over. When I was listening back to the Fort Minor record, I was really struck by the creeping sense of this feels like it should have been impossible. Yeah, And there are right. things happening now that feel like they should be impossible. Oh, yeah. The Japanese-American community has been one of the most vocal communities in the past couple of years especially as it relates to Muslim immigrants, for example, um, when the whole thing was going on about shutting the borders to, to folks who were coming in, living in L.A., the Japanese-American community in L.A. was really vocal about that subject. All of a sudden, they want to start rounding people up again. So, of course, the Japanese-Americans, like my family, are saying, no, guys, we already made this mistake, and the U.S. government said, we can't make it again. You know, you mentioned that, that you recently played your first Solo shows. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be clear, these were really solo shows. It was solo, you, solo. you on stage. Yeah. Nobody else. You've got uh, some dates coming up. I do. I'm headed to Asia and Europe. You're going to play the Reading Festival? Yes. Yeah. Is it just going to be you? I think so. I'm, I want to try that first and uh, see how that feels. And after that, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I'm curious about what the show would look like. If I start adding a couple people, but I don't also don't want it to be confusing in terms of like, you know, the fans wondering if it is or is not Linkin Park or, you know, anything like that. What was the feeling going into these two shows? Were you nervous? Did you know how it would feel to do those Linkin Park songs by yourself? I felt ready to do them. I did feel anxious, quite a bit more anxious before the first show. And I was glad that I did the two on the same day because the first show was almost like a nice warm-up and I, then I felt really relaxed going into the second one. To your point, like, I don't know, maybe I'm just really good at compartmentalizing. <laughs> I felt okay. It's impossible to get through, for example, like Linkin Park songs without thinking about Chester. You know, you, I look out and I see one person, like, just raging, like, screaming and having the best time. And then, like, I look over the other side and, like, somebody crying, right? That's a little tricky. Like, that's new. That's not something I normally would see. How did it compare to last October when you were at the Hollywood Bowl? You did this, what was a memorial concert. That was, yeah, completely different. In October, we had done that show because we realized that we had a private uh, memorial and that the fans didn't have a public one. They didn't have one that they could go to. They didn't get to say goodbye. They didn't get to experience that closure that comes with it. We set that show up. We scheduled it to play that role for the fans, really. Don't get it twisted. It was, like, very hard for us to do. You know, sometimes we'd be rehearsing stuff, and the guys are just like, ugh, can we, like, let's take a break. It's, like, too much. There were a few, like, realizations that were really necessary about doing it. Number one, the warmth and the connected energy of the whole Linkin Park fan community of all of the world like really came together around that show and around the band. 
during that time, and I'm super grateful for that. I mean, everybody was so supportive. It was incredible. And they've continued to be. Artist community, people jumping in, sending in videos, like, I wish we could be there, coming on stage and singing with us and doing all that. Really, really special. We had, I don't know how many artists, 20-something artists, I think. And then in, in retrospect, after having like done those rehearsals and played the show, you know, even watching it back and stuff, I was like, these people who came on stage with us all have awesome, awesome voices, and they're really, really wonderful and talented people, and not a single one of them is Chester. Hmm. Like, there's no one who, even if I'm imagining, like, who could we sing these songs with in the future? As listening back to those, it's like, those are all great moments, but that's none of them are sustainable things. There isn't a version of the band that exists with any of those types of people as wonderful as they are, right? So that just puts more of a, I don't know, it doesn't add more of a question mark maybe, but it just checks things off the list that are not really, we just know what things are not the option. Well, then what are the options? I don't know. <laughs> That's the million dollar question, right? And unfortunately, you know, I've said it before, but unfortunately there aren't any answers to that at this hmm. point. It would be awesome if there were. That would be really easy. Um, I wish we were in a, in a Brian Johnson, Bon Scott situation where it's like, no, the guy, like our best friend who sang for the band, who passed away, he literally said, this is the guy. And we listen to the guy and the guy is definitely the guy. And we all love hanging out with him and we want to play with him. That's not a normal, that, that didn't happen to anybody else, really. That hasn't happened to us. If somebody comes and says, hey, Lincoln Park, do you want to play a show in Germany? Then you have to have a discussion with all the guys and you have one guy who's like, I definitely don't want to do it. And you have one guy who says, I don't know, maybe I, I, maybe we shouldn't do it. And two guys that say, we definitely need to do it. And then there's concerns and blah, all that noise. Like that is not something I can deal with right mm. now. And it's not a knock on anybody else. Any one of us could be the outlier opinion, though, like minority voice on something. But I definitely need some more simplicity in terms of like decision making like oh my gut says that the right thing to do is to shoot a video on the crappy camera on my phone i shoot it i look at it i go i like that and i can put it on the internet and it's done i don't need to call anybody else and that for me that power and that and that control has been part of my like recovery process when you miss chester what do you miss most about him in the beginning, I'll tell you the thing that whenever I saw it, it just made me like so, just like, oh, just so painful, is at the end of every show, we'd put our arm around each other and always say a good show. And that was always such a special moment. It was always that like really satisfying, like, hey, good job. We did it. If the show was really good, then it's like, hey, man, that was a good show. If it was bad, it was like, we made it through that show. Good job. Also, like we always travel together. We'd have a lot of the same conversations and a lot of inside jokes, and we played a lot of poker. Those are things, especially on the road, that like other people around us would have, have mentioned a lot of times. Like, man, it's always so funny hearing you guys like post-show in the van, like just rambling on about nonsense the way we do. We do that goofy voices and they had like these characters. And he, he had like a Russian character that always showed up, like doing this weird Russian accent. Yeah, that was all really great stuff. Mike Shinoda, thank you for being here. Good show. Thank you. Join Inside the Studio for more in-depth conversations with the biggest names in music. 
Search and follow Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Inside the Studio is an iHeartRadio original podcast created by Chris Peterson. This episode was written and hosted by me, Joe Levy. Our executive producer is Sandy Smallins for Audiation. And of course, special thanks to Mike Shinoda and Warner Brothers Records. 